How about we pray as we come into God's word? (laughs) Heavenly Father, help us to be attentive to you and your word this morning. Lord, may you speak clearly and powerfully through your word. Remind us of your gospel truths that save us. And Lord, challenge and encourage us as we keep living for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, all of you would have heard of uh, the company, the brand Kodak. Uh, They're known for their cameras, photography. Uh, They started the famous phrase, the Kodak moment, if you've heard of that. Uh, Kodak was probably the leading company in cameras 50 years ago. In 1976, they had a 90% share in all film sales and an 85% share in the camera industry in the US. They pretty much dominated it. But today, Kodak, they barely exist. You actually won't be able to find a Kodak camera in the shops. Well, what happened to Kodak? Well, they lost their focus. You see, instead of focusing on cameras, what they were good at, what they were leading the market at, what they were originally founded for, they diversified. Instead of focusing on cameras during a time of transition of cameras from analog to digital, they started producing office products, batteries, computer equipment, chemicals, and even pharmaceuticals. And because of this multi-focus, they lost their grip on what they were known for, their photography industry. They lost sight of their original mission. And today, if you look up Kodak's website, it shows that what it sells, its main focus, are photocopiers. Photocopiers, printers. That's a picture of what happens when a group of people aren't clear on their mission. And that's what we're reflecting on this morning, our fourth church value, mission-driven. We've summarized uh, the value like this. We value the mission the Lord Jesus has given us to the church uh, to proclaim Christ and make disciples of all nations. We are serious about obeying Jesus in the Great Commission and understand that we have to be intentional and focused on working with God and making disciples of all nations. We want to be driven as a church to see people saved into a relationship with Jesus and to grow in him. You see, God has saved us powerfully in the work of Jesus on the cross, dying for our sins on our behalf, rising into new life forever. We've just sung about this. We've just prayed about this. And as we accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, we actually join in on God's mission. And while God, he uses certain people in big and powerful ways, both in scripture and in church history, God calls each and every one of us, ordinary people like you and me, to be part of his mission and his work. Uh, We see this mission most clearly in two passages. Uh, The first in Matthew 28, often referred to as the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations, and Acts chapter 1, which is our passage this morning, the task Jesus has left his disciples to go to the ends of the earth. You see, it's the mission that Jesus has left 
the church to do. It's the mission that Jesus has empowered the church to do. In the time of salvation history that we find ourselves in today, between the first coming of Jesus to work salvation and the second coming of Jesus when he comes again in glory. And if you've been in church long enough, you know this. It's probably been engraved into your mind. In a sense, we shouldn't need this church value at all. Our mission statement covers it, doesn't it? But even so, we acknowledge that it's easy to lose focus. Like Kodak, as we saw before, it's easy to diversify, to spend our time and energy on the wrong things, to lose clarity about what we're on about, to not understand what we're supposed to be doing, and to find ourselves as believers and churches ineffective. Ineffective in the original mission and the tasks that Jesus has sent us, has given us. You see, that's why this value is mission-driven. It's about being driven on the mission, focus, clarity on the mission that Jesus has left us. Well, today we're going to look at Acts chapter 1. We're going to get our heads around this passage, and we're going to tease out the mission that drives us as God's people. Well, the book of Acts is part two of Luke's writings. It follows part one, which is the Gospel of Luke. And here in Acts 1, verse 1 and 2, it connects the writing back to the end of Luke. He says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given uh, commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. We learn that Luke, uh, he's writing to a Greek guy, a Gentile in Theophilus, and he summarizes his first book here, all that Jesus began to do and teach until his ascension into heaven, and that's the end of Luke's gospel. And this is important because it sets us up for the book of Acts, implying that what we're about to see is what Jesus continues to do and teach with a question in the air of how is this going to happen? How is Jesus going to continue to do and teach if he's ascended into heaven? And as we keep going in today's passage, we'll see Luke rehash what happened after Jesus rose again up to the point where Jesus ascends to heaven on high. Have a look at verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So what did Jesus do during this time after he rose again and before he ascended into heaven? What does Luke highlight here? Well, Jesus, he's preparing his disciples for the mission ahead. How do we know this? Uh, there's three observations I want to give first. Uh, Jesus appeared to them during 40 days. On one hand, 40 days is actually 40 days. 
Uh, but on the other hand, in the Bible, 40 days seems to always be a significant time used for preparation. Moses waited on Sinai for 40 days before receiving the law. Elijah walked 40 days before God appeared to him on Mount Horeb. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness before commencing his ministry in Galilee. And now Jesus, he spends 40 days preparing his disciples for the mission that is about to begin. Second observation, uh, Jesus prepares them for the work ahead by presenting himself to the apostles, presenting himself, proving to them, showing them, demonstrating them that he is really indeed alive, that he really indeed rose from the dead. If you think about it, how did the apostles of Jesus endure through all the suffering and persecution that they went through in the decades ahead. Well, imagine seeing the risen Lord Jesus for 40 days, not just once, not just twice, but day after day, seeing him, touching him, hearing him. They were convinced that Jesus really had risen from the dead. And Jesus also taught them about the kingdom of God, about the coming kingdom that Jesus had just ushered in by his saving work on the cross, what this kingdom is like, what the new creation is going to be like, what the perfect world that Jesus is going to usher in will be like, what God's rule and reign is like. Third observation, uh, this was a time of preparation because Jesus told them to wait. It's not time to go yet. It's time to stay in Jerusalem. You see, the time wasn't right yet. The promised coming of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' advocate and our helper, hadn't been realized yet. Only then, only when they're empowered by the Spirit, can the mission begin. You see, Jesus prepares his disciples for the mission ahead. As we keep going in this passage, uh, verse 6 and onwards, uh, Jesus now moves to outline to his disciples what the mission and task ahead looks like. And it begins with a question from the disciples in verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? There's a big debate about this. Uh, some say it was an honest question after hearing what the kingdom of God was like. Uh, when, it's, when is it going to happen? Others say it was a naive question that the disciples didn't really get it yet, that they were still thinking of God's kingdom in nationalistic, political, Israel terms. But either way, uh, Jesus steers the question in a different direction. It's a bit clearer in the original, in the Greek, where it can read, on the one hand, uh, verse 6, uh, disciples ask this, and then on the other hand, verse 7, Jesus says something different. And Jesus replies in this way. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. I think Jesus, he's saying something like this. Don't worry about the times. Don't fixate on the question of when the kingdom of God will finally come. All the times and seasons are in God's good hands. 
And we've just seen that in Ecclesiastes. And Jesus, he gives the disciples an alternate focus. He shows them what they should know, what they should focus on about the time ahead. Verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. You see, here we see Jesus outline the mission ahead in his last words before sending on high into heaven. And while we're not focusing on uh, it much today, we have a great and jaw-dropping moment in this passage. Jesus, he outlines his mission, his task for the disciples, and he ascends into the clouds, raised to the right hand of God in heaven. Job done. The work of the cross is finished. And two angels appear to give comment on what the disciples just saw. Well, Jesus, he outlines the mission and task he's left his disciples. And as we explore being mission-driven today, we're going to spend some time digging into verse 8 in particular to grasp and to understand what exactly this mission and task is. And we're going to do this by asking six common questions. The first is who? Who is this mission given to? Well, it's given here. Jesus says, but you. He's talking to the 11 disciples of Jesus. They are the initial recipients of this mission. But we can't wipe our hands clean yet because as we read the progression of Acts, this mission, this task that's spearheaded by the apostles of Jesus It's passed down to the church, to all followers of Jesus. And we'll see more about this later. We're all called to the same mission and task. The second question is what? What is this mission Jesus is giving? Well, verse 8 continues. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, the mission, the task, is about being witnesses to Jesus. They've seen Jesus, they sat under his teaching, they saw him die on the cross, they saw the empty tomb, they saw the risen Lord Jesus. And now it's time to tell others about Jesus, to be witnesses, to be people who establish facts objectively through verifiable observation. And to do that in regards to the person of the risen Lord Jesus. Telling others about the life of Jesus, 
the teachings of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and most importantly, that Jesus did truly indeed rise from the dead, that he is alive. The third question, how? How is this going to be accomplished? Well, we missed a part of verse 8 before that can't be forgotten. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You see, it's not by our own power, or our own intelligence, our own labor or will or, or persuasiveness that will accomplish the tasks set before us by Jesus. And Jesus, he didn't leave us on our own either. He empowers us by the long-awaited and promised Holy Spirit, God's Spirit whom Ezekiel saw would give life to dry bones, whom Jesus promised would be our advocate and our helper in his time of absence. The Spirit of God working in and through us, empowering us to work the mission and the task set before us. You see, in this context, the role of the Holy Spirit is tied up and linked with disciples of Jesus being witnesses to the risen Lord Jesus. You see, the Holy Spirit's work is all about gospel proclamation. It's all about sharing Jesus, being witnesses to Jesus, and convicting hearts as people hear the testimony of Jesus. And it's not just about the Spirit working in their hearts. It's actually the Spirit empowering us to be witnesses to Jesus. The fourth question is where? Where is this mission focused on? And the end of verse 8 puts it famously. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. For these Jewish disciples, uh, the mission to witness to Jesus starts in Jerusalem, where they are. And that's how we see the first part of Acts play out. The mission doesn't just stay there, though. It moves to all of Judea and Samaria. That's the surrounding region. And this was important for the Jewish people because Judea and Samaria looks to all of the kingdom of Israel, the nation that was divided into, the nation that God promised would one day be restored. And the mission doesn't stop there either. It moves to the end of the earth either referring to literally as far as you can go on earth, or it's referring to Rome, the major multicultural city at the time that they regarded as the end of the earth, that they would connect them to the rest of the world. Either way, it's talking about all people, all locations, all tribes and tongues, to the end of the earth. The fifth question is when? When does the mission happen? Well, the first part of verse 8 says the mission starts on that great moment when the Spirit comes down, which is what we see in Acts chapter 2. And while it's not a strong indication, the section ends with a promise in verse 11. And I think it's suggesting that this mission, this task that Jesus gives his disciples will keep going and going and going 
until Jesus finally comes back in glory. It's like Jesus is saying, while I'm away, until I see you again, this is your task. This is what you're to do. And the final question is why? Why should we take on this mission and task? Well, to put it simply, it's Jesus' command. It's the final command, the final task that he gives his disciples. It's the task that the church of Jesus is caught up in. As the book of Acts progresses, all believers receive the Holy Spirit. So therefore, all believers are empowered and called to witness to Jesus. And as followers of Jesus today, as servants of Jesus, people who are graciously saved by him, we too, we're called to obey our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So as we consider our church value of being mission-driven, as we reflect on Acts chapter 1, let's be reminded afresh. You've heard this a thousand times, but let's be reminded afresh of the task Jesus has left his church. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in, Jude- in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, he's left us with a mission, a task. He's given us work to do, and he's given us a helper to empower us to do this work. And the work is to be witnesses to the risen Lord Jesus from where you are to the end of the earth. When we read passages like this, I think it's so clear, it's so easy to see what we're on about. But it's hard, isn't it, in the midst of life to be focused on this task. Things get in the way of the work of being witnesses to Jesus. And here are some of the barriers that I think get in the way of us being witnesses to Jesus. And as we think through them, think about you as a follower of Jesus. Which barrier resonates with you the most as something stopping you or hindering you from being a witness to Jesus? And then think about us as a church, together, our community. Which barrier resonates with us the most as something stopping us from being a corporate witness to Jesus? Here are five barriers that I see around. First, we're not clear on the mission. We're not clear that we're called to be witnesses to Jesus. We think that following Jesus, the purpose of the church, is about something else, or it's about many other things, some good things like community, or sound doctrine, or social justice, and other neutral and not so good things like being comfortable, being part of the social club, the in-group, or it's about power or entitlement, or it's about positive motivation. It's about all of these other things that the mission to be witnesses to Jesus becomes something in the background, or being one of the many things 
and gets lost in that, and we make the same mistake that Kodak made, that Kodak moment. First barrier, maybe you're not clear on the mission. Maybe we're not clear on the task that Jesus has left us. Second barrier, you think that some are called to mission and others aren't. Well, in Acts, uh, the church, all disciples of Jesus are called to be witnesses to Jesus. Yes, there are prominent names like Peter and Paul and others, but all are empowered with the Holy Spirit. All are involved in proclaiming Christ. You see, the task that Jesus leaves to the apostles, it captures all of God's people. But I think it's very common today to think that only some are called to this. Maybe it's the pastors, the leaders, the trained, the gifted, and the skilled, and that's it. Maybe that's what you grew up being taught. Or maybe you're not confident, and that's where you land. Or maybe that's the way you get out of obeying Jesus in this way. The City Bible Forum, uh, they recently had a month in September really thinking about evangelism, uh, and they put an article out, and it said this, 90% of churchgoers are your ordinary followers of Jesus, and they struggle to witness for Jesus. 10% of churchgoers are your ordinary followers of Jesus, who really give it a good hard go at actively sharing Jesus, inviting people to church events. It's still a struggle, but they give it a real hard go. And then he says, 0.01% of churchgoers, they're the gifted and the talented ones. They're the Billy Grahams, the John Lennoxes, the Dan Pattersons, the Sam Chans. They're the really gifted ones who are actively sharing Jesus and inviting people to church. I think the 90%, they look at that 0.01% and they think, that's not me. And then they think they're not called to mission. But if we think about it for a moment, wouldn't it be great if you're in that 90% to first acknowledge that you're in that 90%, but then to see that we're all called to this task of being witnesses to Jesus. And then over the years, to chip away at this idea of being a witness to Jesus, to join that 10%. And maybe as we keep thinking about being a church on mission, in five years' time, it's not 90% and 10%, but maybe it's 50% and 50%, or maybe it's even 10% and 90%, as many of us here as we can. We're all ordinary followers of Jesus, but we're just giving it a good hard go at being witnesses to Jesus, actively sharing Jesus to those around us. We had our church dinner last night. Imagine one day at our church dinner, we'd have 80 people or more, as many visitors as regulars, because everyone's invited another person to the dinner. 
and everyone's talking to an unbeliever or a visitor at the dinner. Our second barrier, some, we think some are called and not others. Our third barrier, we think that financially supporting those overseas is enough. Financially supporting overseas mission is great. We should never stop doing this. We should always continue partnering with gospel workers as they share the gospel, as they witness to Jesus to the ends of the earth. But if we look at verse 8, Jesus doesn't say, support my witnesses. He doesn't say, give money to my witnesses. He says, be my witnesses. Be my witnesses wherever you are. Be it and even go to the ends of the earth. Financially supporting overseas mission isn't a replacement to being a witness yourself. Fourth barrier. Witnessing for Jesus is too hard or too scary. And it's true. It can be hard and scary to witness to Jesus. It means putting relationships on the line. It means sticking your head out there. It means not knowing how the other person will respond. It means answering hard questions. But I think the biggest thing that stood out for me going through this familiar passage today is that we're not doing it alone. You see, Jesus has given us, he's empowered us with his spirit, the Holy Spirit, who's working in and through us as we witness to Jesus. And as we simply bear witness to Jesus, God, he works by his spirit, convicting us to be a witness and convicting hearts for Jesus pointing people to Jesus. And this, I think, it should encourage us. It should relieve us. It should assure us and comfort us as we share and show Jesus to those around us. Fifth and final barrier. We don't know any non-Christians. Maybe for some of us, we've grown around our Christian circles so much that we simply don't interact with non-believers or our eyes aren't open to the people around us who don't know Jesus. And for us to be witnesses to Jesus, we do need to rub shoulders with those who don't know Jesus. We need to be in our communities. We need to be around people to be a witness to Jesus. And being an introvert doesn't let you off the hook, unfortunately. It just makes it look a bit different. And we need to talk to our non-believing, non-Christian people in our churches too. Isn't it sad when you hear about non-Christian visitors going to a church and being unwelcomed? It's a sad indictment on our church, on all the churches when we hear this happen. For me, as a person who works in the church, uh, I realized a couple of years ago that I had very few non-Christian friends. Uh, all my high school, my uni friends had gone out the separate ways, and I had very few non-Christian friends. And I realized that I had to intentionally 
hang out with non-believers to put my time and energy there so that I can be a witness to them. Well, as we finish off our time today, as we consider what it means to be mission-driven, let's be reminded again of the mission and the task Jesus has left us. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. To put it simply, if we're not mission-driven, if we're not witnessing to Jesus, what are we doing as Christians and as a church? If this isn't what drives us, then we're just another social club. We're just gathering because we like to hang out and not much more. So let's hear the task that Jesus has left us to move out, to be empowered by the Spirit, witnessing to Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one we worship, the one sent from God, the one who died for our sins on behalf, the one who was raised to new life, the one who calls all to find life in believing in Jesus. And to witness to Jesus, until either Jesus calls us home or until that day when Jesus comes again in glory and power and majesty and wonder. That's what it means to be mission-driven. Let's pray for God's help in this. Father God, please help us to be witnesses to Jesus. Please forgive us, Lord, for the times when we're distracted or we put your mission to the back of our minds and priorities. Lord, give us boldness and opportunities to share Jesus in all we say and do, both in our personal lives and together as a church. Our Father God, we do this for your kingdom to grow as your people, as people are saved from death to life in Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.